Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Darius, CEO and founder of CISO, a workforce management platform for the agriculture industry that's raised nearly $30 million in funding. Michael, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me, Brett. Excited to uh, be here with you. Not a problem. Super excited to chat. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe a bit more about your background? Yeah, of course. My name is Michael Gerges. I'm the co-founder and CEO of CISO. We are an end-to-end kind of workforce management platform for agriculture. I don't have an agriculture background. I have a bit more of a labor background. So I studied labor economics in college, wrote my thesis on labor policy, and I graduated at the heart of the last recession. And everyone was kind of interested, you know, in the economics major, in job creation and and the unemployment rate. And I interned at the White House right after college in the National Economic Council, working on job creation initiatives. And then I worked at McKinsey doing a lot of public sector work and again, focusing on vocational training and job creation. And then I got convinced by my cousin to quit that job and join his startup, which was a labor marketplace for on-demand education. And we connected students and tutors over a mobile app. And in the first year, we had a million students on our platform and we had thousands of teachers and tutors get jobs with us. And I realized that, you know, if you really want to do job creation at scale, it's much more interesting to do that in the private sector, leveraging technology than trying to climb the government ladder. So after doing that for a few years, I started CISO and and haven't really looked back since. So take me back to when you were like 10 years old, were you just dreaming about labor or where did that passion come from for labor? No, I mean, when I was younger, I wouldn't, you know, I think like many kids, I just wanted to do something that helped people make a difference in the world. So I didn't know what that was. So I thought, oh, it's, you know, being the secretary general of the UN or something like that. Then eventually I learned what an economist was. And I thought that was really interesting or like being somebody who makes policies that help people. But it, it wasn't as specific as labor until I would say college. What was it like working in the White House? What was like the most surprising thing that you learned or a surprising thing that you saw while you were working there? Well, what's super interesting is that it's a really small team. So like the entire National Economic Council, which makes all of the policies that get rolled out is about 30 something people. And as an intern, like once you proved yourself, you had a ton of responsibility. And so I was writing briefs that ultimately would go up to the director of the National Economic Council and sometimes to the president about the state of the housing crisis or the state of um, some of the employment policies that were being initiated. And that was just really cool that, you know, you could be an unpaid intern and and you could actually be having an impact. Yeah, that's super cool. A couple of questions we like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick. First one, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? I'm a really big fan of Ryan Peterson from Flexport because he was really embedded in a problem and he decided to kind of take this really unique route of building in in an industry where it's been around forever, you know, shipping and, and logistics. And and there have been so many smart people. There's been so much money poured into this industry and no one's ever really innovated with, you know, a software enabled platform the way Flexport did to that industry. And I thought that was just like, you know, everyone that talks about Ryan as an operator says amazing things. He's invested in our company. And so I don't know him personally too well, but I've just always been impressed with taking on an extremely large and challenging industry and just totally crushing it. 
And then Zien from Rig Up now Work Rise is another one where Zien was working in oil and gas and, and saw this problem as somebody kind of like from the investor standpoint and decided to quit his job and, and work full time on addressing that problem and making it easier for contractors to get jobs in upstream oil and gas and to get insurance and kind of to simplify and streamline that process, both for the employers and, and the workforce. So those are two founders that I'm, I'm a big fan of. We have another podcast called Unicorn Builders that interviews founders who build billion dollar companies. And we actually interviewed his co-founder of WorkRise, Michael Witte, and did a deep dive on what they were building there. It's a fascinating company. And he spoke very highly of him. When I asked Mike the question, he said it was uh, his co-founder uh, that you just mentioned there was the founder that he admires the most. Oh, awesome. Yes. <laughs> now let's talk about books. Now, how we like to frame this, and, and this comes from Ryan Holiday, he calls them quick books. So a quick book's a book that like rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world, how you approach life. Do any books like that come to mind? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll preface with, you know, this is a controversial one in a sense, but uh, I learned a lot from it. Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. <laughs> so this is a pretty long book that talks about the history and kind of story of Genghis Khan. And he's one of these characters in history that has been painted very differently in Eastern versus Western society. But the legacy this guy has is wild. And he basically like started this empire that united the modern world from, you know, Mongolia all the way to the UK. And he's considered to be in a lot of Western society. Like he was demonized for a long time because, you know, he was the one who kind of conquered Europe. But a lot of the best things that we have in our world came from, you know, Mongol society. And so there's just a big misperception. But what's most interesting about this is Genghis Khan didn't want to be a conqueror. He wasn't a ruler or a king. He kind of had his small little fiefdom and then was really offended by a traitor who killed his men when they were trying to make a trade. And he had like kind of a, a way of life or a rule of, of how he lived his life and, and of their society that he felt was betrayed. And so he basically declared war on the world. But in that process, he united the world and he united and created all these modern trading routes and and a lot of, you know, he probably sped up innovation in a, in a ton of ways that people don't give him credit for without knowing his whole story. You said it's a long book. How long are we talking? I have some guests come on, they tell me a book, I get excited and I look and it's like 1200 pages. What are we looking at here? Uh, no, it's probably in that range too. I got to look it up. I, I read it a few years ago. It's not more than 1200 pages. Okay. Well, if I spend 20 hours reading this and it's, it's no good, I'm going to come back and send you an <laughs> Let's switch gears now and let's dive into the company. How we like to start this is let's focus on the problem. So what problem do you solve? So the biggest problem in agriculture is access to labor. And what we solve is streamlining the process of hiring and managing a labor force. Take us back to the founding of the company. What was it about this problem? How'd you uncover this problem? And what made you say, yep, I'm going to build a company around this? So I've always been interested in labor and job creation, and I didn't know a ton about farming, but my cousin, Marsha is a farmer in the Central Valley in California, and she needed help figuring out if she could buy the property next door. And the farm next door was available for purchase. And I was kept looking at her financials and it was pretty clear that she didn't have enough labor and, and labor was this constant pain point and the price of labor and, and everything that she was, she was doing was constrained by, do you, do you have enough workers to pick the crop and harvest the crop if they were to expand. And so I, I kind of became really interested and obsessed with like, well, how do you address this huge labor shortage and this and this problem in ag? And first, before I did, you know, what we started doing today, we we looked at 
robotics and automation and, you know, strawberry picking robotics and things like that. And I would run this idea by farmers and they kept saying, you know, nobody needs another stupid robot. You know, there's a ton of these guys out there. They're way ahead of you and it's not making a dent anytime soon, which was surprising. You know, most venture capitalists think that uh, vertical farming and, and automation are just going to, you know, replace humans in, in ag in the near future. And, and that's far from the truth or at least anytime soon. And they said, you know, solve the labor problem. That's what farmers need. And then I was having the Thanksgiving dinner with Marsha, my cousin and her husband, who's from Oaxaca, from, you know, Southern Mexico. He said, you know, in Mexico, there's a visa we treat like gold, but nobody knows how to get it. And I started looking into it and I learned that, you know, there's this big visa group called H2A, which is one of the only visas in the U.S. that's uncapped and it's grown 300% in the last few years. It's continuing to grow tremendously. And there's a ton of complexity around that problem. It's hard for farms to understand how to bring in workers on that visa, how to follow the different regulations required to manage that workforce. And the more you dig into and talk to farmers, you realize, you know, that whole back office is broken. So you've got payroll software that doesn't talk to accounting software that doesn't talk to your timekeeping software. You've got processes that should be definitely be done digitally, still being done manually. And while there's a ton of innovation in ag tech in terms of like drones and sensors in the field and, and all this investment in trying to increase yields on the production side of agriculture, you see very little investment in the labor side. And the biggest pain point is labor and the biggest spend is labor. And the more I kind of saw these things and then started talking to farms and shadowing farmers, the more I realized this was the most interesting you can do, you know, in terms of supporting the ag industry is addressing the labor shortage and the visa was the way to break in. Can you paint a picture for us of what the agriculture landscape look like? Like, is it looks like today? Is it, you know, like a bunch of distributed independent farmers or is it all like owned by BlackRock or some other you know, PE firm that owns everything? So there's still, you know, close to 2 million farms in America, but you are seeing a ton of consolidation. So, you know, mom and pop farmers are struggling more and you're seeing BlackRock and hedge funds and PE firms buying up more land. Generally, those guys that you know, Bill Gates is the biggest landowner right now in the world, or sorry, in the country. And so people think, oh, like, so it's now being run by these big corporate organizations. But there's a difference between who owns the land and who actually like harvests the crop and grows on the land. And so you still have you know, even some of the biggest farms in America, like Taylor Farms and Tanamura and Antel Lippman Family Farms. These are all still run by the families. So, you know, farming is still, you know, very much family businesses, but sometimes the land owners are much bigger entities. What's it like selling to them? Do they tend to be open to, you know, technology platforms like yours, or is that a hard sale to make? It was hard initially because you're selling the little bit of software you'd built, and then you're selling the vision. And so that's, you know, I think across any industry that's hard, but as we've actually been able to spend time with farmers and build, you know, real tools that solve problems for them, it's become a lot easier. One of the things that a farmer said to me, that's always stood out to me was he said, you know, a lot of people from Silicon Valley, they come here and they try to tell me how to farm and I know how to farm. You don't know how to farm, but you came here and told me about a program that I'm trying to use that I don't really understand. And I appreciate that. Right? Like, so we don't go there and say, Hey, you know, we're going to do this and that for you. And we've got all these data analytics on your farm and, you know, and we're smarter than you to an extent we're staying in our lane and we're really just maniacally focused on everything related to labor. So the regulations, uh, you know, like what's happening in DC, that's going to affect labor policy. What are the different workflows related to an I-9 or onboarding a worker or payroll compliance? So things really in the weeds that, you know, 
your back office is, is running and we're tracking every detail that for you. And so when they see that, hey, we don't just have software, we really understand this better than anyone they've ever spoken to. And we're going to help them maintain compliance. We're going to help them do things the right way, do things legally and sustainably, but also like have an ROI long-term. We have to earn the trust. You don't just say we have cool software. It's really like we are industry experts on something that is really important to your operation and you're not an industry expert on. Did you have product market fit right away or what was that journey like to finding product market fit? I think it's too simple of an answer to say yes. But one thing I'll say that we're very proud of is actually met with an engineer we were I was thinking of making a co-founder early early on and he's at OpenAI now and uh, I ran into him at a dinner four years later and, I, and he's like what are you working on and I told him and he said you know that's word for word what I remember you pitching me four years ago so in a sense like the problem we're trying to address the labor shortage and streamlining kind of this visa program and building software around it has been the same the solution space has changed a bit so initially I thought okay, well, this is clearly a marketplace and matching supply and demand is our value add. And the more time, you know, we've spent building products and serving customers, the more we realize they need vertical software across the entire back office more so than they need, you know, a marketplace solution. So there's been kind of changes, but I think we made those changes very, very early on, or I shouldn't even say changes. We focused in on the product to address the core pain points early, early on and haven't had to do any major pivots. I think there are elements of, you know, what we thought was going to be the big value out of that product that was not as powerful as something else we hadn't thought about, but the core product itself and the core market, you know, has remained the same, I would say. How has the problem evolved since 2019? Is this problem getting any better or is it just as bad as it was when you started? I would say it has not gotten significantly better at a macro level. I think the customers that work with us are having a better experience, have a lot more data, transparency, you know, like they have an ROI, but you know, generally on a macro level, there's a massive labor shortage that continues to exist. There's been no, nothing close to immigration reform to address it. So, you know, so, so basically we have two to 3 million ag workers in the U S there's a demand for at least another half million. And every year, more and more of these ag workers leave the industry, whether it's because they're retiring or they go into another industry that, you know, is less physically taxing. And so this visa program, which is uncapped, has grown from, you know, must have been 250,000 when we started to now it's 380,000 workers. We think it'll hit a million in the next few years. So the visa program is kind of the solution that exists and, and we're just trying to make it easier and more compliant for both farms to navigate it, but also a better experience for workers entering this visa program. But the core macro problem is still remains. Because immigration is such a, a hot topic in politics that everyone likes to fight about and debate about, do you ever get pulled into those types of conversations? Yeah, I've spent a decent amount of time talking to folks in DC, whether that's senators or congressmen and women or regulatory consultants, and also working with nonprofits that are in the ag space. And I'm not super optimistic about a short-term solution. And so I try to spend less of my energy, you know, pushing for that. There are great organizations out there that support, you know, the ag industry and support the workforce and are fighting for changes, but we're, you know, we're not a lobbyist and, and that's not our goal. So, so I, I try to stay in tune of what's going on, but don't take a stance on that too hard. Does anyone oppose H2A? Like, is there anyone trying to get that eliminated? 
No one's trying to get it eliminated. I mean, the reality is when the pandemic started, the president banned every single visa group from entering the U.S. until he figured out, you know, what's going on with, with the coronavirus. Within 24 hours, he unbanned H-2A because that's how important and essential it is to our economy. I mean, if you don't have this workforce here, then you're not going to have lettuce at Costco or Walmart. So I think there's pretty broad understanding and recognition that, you know, we need this labor force. You see that from both Democrats and Republicans. The program hasn't really been updated in a really long time. And I think there's interest in modernizing this program. And, and that's what we try to do with some of our software. But from a regulatory perspective, I think Democrats and Republicans have different views on what are the core changes that need to be made. But nobody's trying to kill the program, to my understanding. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. That sounds like you have a long background in labor, but you were new to the agriculture industry when you were starting the company. So because you were kind of an outsider, you know, looking into the space, you're moving into this space. What's the most like surprising thing that you've learned about farming, farmers and agriculture in general? Yeah, first of all, I mean, the move that I made, which was the best move that I made in starting this company was convincing Jordan Taylor, my co-founder, to leave Farmers Business Network to join me on this journey. And uh, we wouldn't be the company we are today if he didn't do that. There's two different types of agriculture and they have very different dynamics. So it's just like a very basic framework, a specialty crop, you know, which is fruits and vegetables and tree nuts and things like that. And then row crop, which is corn, wheat, and soy, highly mechanized, highly subsidized, you know, all over the Midwest, you have corn, wheat, and soy farms. And then, you know, on the coasts and, and Michigan and the rest of the country, you, you have a lot more specialty crop and the dynamics, both from, you know, how you manage that farm and how the government, you know, plays a role in, in what crops are being grown is extremely different. And I find that really interesting. It's two different worlds, specialty crop and row crop. The software that you use is, is different. The workforce that you bring in is different. The role the government plays is very different. So that to me was, was really interesting because most people just think, you know, they just imagine this ideal farm with a little red barn and fields of whatever and, uh, you know, corn or wheat or soy. And, and, and the specialty crop world is, is really exciting to me. Would you ever uh, open a farm? Let's say, yeah, the company IPOs, you go public, you step down as CEO. You know, what do you do after that? Would you ever open a farm? I don't know if I'd step down, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I would definitely open a farm. I mean, my, I mentioned before my, I started the company trying to help my cousin grow her farm. And I spent a lot of time on our farm and, and we eat, you know, the best food in the world, you know, this amazing organic produce that she's grown. She studied sustainable farming in Brazil and at Berkeley, and, and she knows, you know, the best practices for growing healthy produce. And so, yeah, I mean, to be able to eat that every day and, you know, would be amazing. I think a lot of investors have asked me, oh, I want to buy some farmland. And they, they have this very, you know, idyllic image of what it would be like to own a farm and, and they seem to forget all the hard work behind it. So own a farm, if I was willing to kind of put in some work and really be involved in the operations and not just kind of own it on paper. Yeah. I just want the Instagram and social media photos. I don't want to have to do any of the work. <laughs> now in terms of adoption and growth, what are you seeing today? Can you share any numbers? Yeah. So we've been operational for three years in terms of like the 
side of H2A agents that support farms with helping bring in labor. We were the 45th largest in the first year. We were the seventh largest last year, and we're currently the third largest. So we've like grown really dramatically. And that's just kind of farms that directly use our services to bring in the labor force. There are also other farms that, that use our software that do this work in-house. And so by any metric, we're one of the major players. We work with 22 of the 100 largest employers in ag, whether that's through pure software or a combination of software and services, services being kind of like, you know, support around getting the visa for their workforce. And, you know, it's something we're really proud of. We are quickly growing as like, you know, the standard for the enterprise farms, but we've also maintained, you know, support for some of the smallest farms in the country. So a lot of the farms that we bring in that we work with are just bringing in one or two workers. And then we have farms that are bringing in 5,000 plus workers. And it's really important to us to support you know, not just enterprise farms and enterprise employers, but also some of the mom and pop farms that, that helped us get our first start. You mentioned you're number three today. What needs to happen for you to become number one and how far away do you think that is? I think it's a year or two away. I think there are certain products that we're launching that kind of go within the suite of our service offering that just makes it a no brainer that you want to work with us to be your partner, you know, in the H2A program. And so it's just, we're building those products and we're learning from our employers and our customers. And I think it's going to happen organically. We don't do any, mar I mean, we, we have a sales team, but we do very little marketing outside of webinars and attending events. And we really try to partner with farms that understand the value of our software, but also care about compliance. So we're not just going to say yes to every farm if, if we don't think that we have the, the same values aligned. It was maybe a media article or another podcast that you did, but I think someone talked about you as the gusto for agriculture. Is that a fair way to summarize you know, how you think about yourself or how we could package you up? There's definitely a lot of truth to that. It's it's really hard to put us into one of those categories, the gusto for agriculture, or the rippling for agriculture, or the you know work rise for agriculture, because our model is extremely unique. So the crux of the software, payroll, onboarding, benefits. I mean, those are things that you'll see a lot of parallels in our software, but then like the immigration side is pretty unique. I almost think about it like deal, you know, deal helps American companies or companies hire people abroad and then employ them abroad and takes care of the paperwork in the background. And we're helping American farms bring in a foreign workforce and employ them legally and, and in a compliant way in the U.S. And then, you know, over time, we plan to expand into other blue collar industries that have a shortage of labor in the U.S. And, and need to bring in workers on visas. So I think that's like one way to think about it is streamlining and simplifying employing an international workforce in the U.S. What do you attribute to all of the success you've had so far? Because, you know, throughout this conversation, you make it sound easy. And, you know, <laughs> these are some of these problems that, you know, founders struggle with. You've just, you know, blown right past them. So what do you think you've gotten right? I mean, I think the first thing is the market. So, you know, to disrupt a market, you need to have a big market, a growing market, a fragmented market with a complex problem and an opportunity for technology to improve that problem. And we have all of those things in spades. The second thing is focus. I mean, there's a lot of really shiny objects. You know, ag has so much opportunity for improvement in such a laggard industry in a lot of ways that there's a lot of different things we could have jumped into early on, whether that's, you know, accounting or BI tools. And we really tried to stay maniacally focused on the labor problem. And I think that focus has helped a ton. And then the third is just listening to customers. So I spent, you know, a ton of time early on just 
driving and flying to farms all over the country. I've, I've visited hundreds of farms in the last few years, my co-founder as well. And we try to do more listening than talking. And, you know, farmers have a lot of alone time. So when they open up, they really talk and you learn a ton about, you know, the problems they face, the industry, who's come and tried to address those problems in the past and why it didn't work. So just kind of being open to listening to farms and, and then taking that, documenting it and sharing it with your team and figuring out, okay, now we know about this problem. How do we address that with our software? How do we, how do we improve what we're offering to farms based on what we're hearing in the field? Like literally in the field, right? What keeps you up at night? Speed, I would say. I mean, we move really fast, but the number one advantage that a startup has is speed. You know, in companies that have been doing this a long time, they're not going to listen and move as fast as we are. And at the same time, you know, we hear about companies popping up, trying to copy our model or trying to tackle the market from a different angle, from a different entry point product. And we have a clear vision of where we want to be in, in the next few years. And you don't know until you're at it if the path that you're taking to get there is the right path. We just know the end state is super clear. And so I want to make sure we're the first ones to tackle the biggest problems that our customers face. That's our like one of our core values is solve the farm's biggest problems. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised nearly 30 million in funding. What have you learned about fundraising so far? Don't take anything for granted would be one. So I raised initially during the peak of fundraising in the last 20 years where it almost felt easy at times because we had traction, we had an exciting market, but also just the market was so ripe for companies like ours to come in with a bold vision. And now, similarly, we are continuing to grow like crazy. We've got a super talented team, but the market has changed. And so you need to adapt and not just assume you know, the way you approach things early on, you know, in fundraising is going to be exactly how it is in the next round. Each round is very different because the market is different because the expectations are different. So just kind of being ready to adapt and not taking things for granted. And then two is really focusing on people. So we've got some great investors that I've learned a lot from, but some of the best investors are angel investors that, you know, are not from a fund you've ever heard of, but they're putting in insane amounts of effort and time and thoughtfulness into supporting us. And uh, so brands matter and we've got phenomenal brands and then the individual people you're gonna work with and spend time with, you know, you wanna make sure you admire them, you can learn from them, you like them. And it's not just about, you know, getting the best brand names on, on your cap table. If you were starting the company again today from scratch, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? Mm, great question. Just be more decisive. I mean, there are very few big decisions that I regret I mean, I don't regret any of the big decisions, I should say, but I wish I made some of them sooner because, you know, the big decisions you often know in your gut that you need to make them, whether it's letting someone go or bringing someone really expensive on or raising money or not raising money, you know, all the time you spend deliberating on these big decisions and then you end up going with your gut 90% of the time, if not more. And, you know, you would save yourself a lot of wasted time and stress if you just are more decisive going into those decisions. What's the single biggest, most important decision that you've made? It's without a doubt getting Jordan Taylor to become my co-founder and work with me on this because it was just an idea and it was a crazy idea because I didn't have an ag background and uh, he was someone that I'd met and admired and knew we would complement each other really well. And so getting him on board was the best decision. And then second, maybe is getting our CRO, Julie Harris, who, who came out of Flexport, who's total badass and just such a professional, so good at her job. Getting her on board was also a really big one. 
We're almost up on time here. So just one final question. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? You know, three years from now, we want to be the operating system for farms where you hire and manage your workforce, you know, both workers on this visa and domestic. You handle your timekeeping, your payroll, your insurance, your HR, basically an end-to-end platform that I think is a pretty unique model. And there's not a ton of industries that have that, but that's how much opportunity there is in ag. And I would say five years is we see a lot of these same problems in other industries, um, in landscaping and forestry, fisheries, truck drivers, construction. They all have labor shortages. They all have kind of pain points related to not only bringing in labor on visas, but then also being compliant in how you, you know, do payroll and, and, and manage the, the different regulations of, of a domestic and international workforce working next to each other. And so expanding what we're doing today into other industries is definitely in our roadmap, you know, with a focus on these blue collar industries that need temp labor or seasonal labor. Amazing. We are going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founders listening in just want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? I'm a bit of a dinosaur in that I'm not big on Twitter or X. <laughs> uh, I post everything on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, you know, hours every week, just looking for talent, reaching out to people, chatting with people, posting about our company on LinkedIn. So it's not the sexiest platform, but it's my platform. <laughs> Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I know it's going to be a hit with our audience as well. So really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Brett. Appreciate the time. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 